President Biden imposes sanctions on four Israeli settlers in the West Bank accused of attacking Palestinians. It's Friday, February 2nd. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, as South Carolina holds its primaries this weekend, many Americans say they aren't happy with the way the 2024 presidential election is shaping up. I'm 71. I've been voting since my first opportunity to vote, and this is the worst choices that I've seen in my lifetime. Also this hour, there are growing concerns about swatting becoming a trend in political violence in the U.S. Plus, we speak with a Palestinian architect about the massive task of reconstructing Gaza after the war between Israel and Hamas. It's not only the building that have been destroyed, it's also the heritage, the culture, the collective memory. Celtics lose, mostly cloudy and near 40 today. It's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. The Labor Department reports this morning on job growth in the month of January. NPR's Scott Horsley reports today's numbers could cap off a second full year with an unemployment rate below 4%. This is the longest streak of super low unemployment in more than half a century. That's good news for workers. The strong job market has drawn more people into the labor force, and many are being rewarded with higher wages. Forecasters expect the January jobs report to show another solid month of hiring. Job growth has slowed from this time last year, however, and many of the gains are concentrated in just a handful of industries. So far, higher interest rates have not torpedoed the job market, as many forecasters had feared. The Federal Reserve said this week that if inflation continues to come down, Fed policymakers could start cutting interest rates, although probably not for a few more months. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. Democratic lawmakers are urging the Biden administration to do more to protect pregnant patients who seek medical treatment from being prosecuted as criminals. As NPR's Sarah McCammon reports, the lawmakers say the threat has intensified following the Supreme Court's decision to overturn decades of abortion rights precedent in 2022. The new letter, spearheaded by the Democratic Women's Caucus, refers to the case of an Ohio woman who faced felony charges for abuse of a corpse after experiencing a miscarriage last year. A grand jury decided not to indict her. Ohio Congresswoman Joyce Beatty wants the Biden administration to investigate such cases. You don't get to pick up the phone, violate a person's HIPAA rights, and then say to this person, I'm consoling you with one hand and calling the police to have a person arrested. On the other hand, the letter, signed by more than 150 members of Congress, asked the administration to devote financial and legal resources to patients facing criminal charges related to their pregnancies. Sarah McCammon, NPR News, Washington. Fighting continues today in Gaza. Talks continue about a possible pause in the conflict and an exchange of detainees and hostages. Israel says it has killed thousands of Hamas fighters, but Hamas still continues to fight Israeli forces. A British government official says the U.K. would be prepared to recognize a future Palestinian state. U.K. Foreign Secretary David Cameron is also the country's former prime minister. That's long been our position. And of course, as part of that, Britain, along with other countries, would recognize Palestine as a country and recognize Palestine at the United Nations. And what I'm saying is, of course, that can't come at the start of the process, but it doesn't have to be the very end of the process. It could be something that we consider as this process, as this advance to a solution uh, becomes more real. Cameron says that this step is vital for the long-term peace and security of the region. 
You're listening to NPR News. I'm Rupa Shanoi. This is WBUR in Boston. Governor Moore Healy is asking a superior court judge to intervene in the ongoing Newton teacher strike. Healy wants a judge to order teachers and city officials into arbitration if the two sides can't reach a deal by the end of the day. This is the 11th day of canceled classes in the district. School leaders are now considering alternatives to help students make up lost class time. Massachusetts House and Senate lawmakers will now work on a compromise gun control bill to send to Governor Moore Healy. That comes as the state Senate overwhelmingly passed a sweeping gun reform package last night after hours of debate. WBUR's Walter Ruthman reports. The SAFER Act would crack down on untraceable ghost guns, prohibit guns from being carried in certain government buildings, and tighten the state's ban on assault weapons. Senate Majority Leader Cynthia Cream calls it a common-sense response to gun violence. I believe strongly that the bill before us will reduce gun deaths and gun injuries in Massachusetts, and that it will do so without infringing on gun owners' rights. The Senate bill now needs to be reconciled with the version the House passed last fall. The House proposal is nearly 100 pages longer and has even more restrictions on carrying guns in public places. Second Amendment groups called the bill an assault on civil rights. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman. The National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration is testing a new type of lobster gear off the coast of Massachusetts and Rhode Island. It's designed to prevent whales from getting entangled. Henry Milliken is leading the test for NOAA. He says they're asking fishermen to locate and haul traps electronically instead of using lines and buoys. We are looking for the fishermen to provide us that feedback back to the manufacturers about what improvements can be made, what what issues they've encountered, uh, so that improvements can be made to those systems so that they operate as the fishermen would like them to operate. The tests will run through the 1st of May. The closely divided New Hampshire House rejected three abortion bills yesterday. The House fell short of asking voters to make abortion rights part of the state constitution. The New Hampshire House also rejected a bill that would have required two doctors be present for abortions after 15 weeks. The third bill would have banned abortions after 15 days of gestation. That was also rejected. It's 706. WBUR supporters include Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. The Lakers beat the Celtics at the Garden last night 114 to 105. That's despite stars LeBron James and Anthony Davis sitting out. The Celtics play at home again Sunday night against the Memphis Grizzlies. Men and women's pro hockey were off. Mostly cloudy today. We'll have a high near 40. Still cloudy tonight. The low will be around 30. There's a slight chance of snow between 10 and 11 p.m. Tomorrow, mostly sunny with a high in the mid-30s. Sunday, sunny with a high in the upper 30s. It's 39 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include the Kresge Foundation. Established 100 years ago, the Kresge Foundation works to expand equity and opportunity in cities across America. A century of impact, a future of opportunity. More at kresge.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Falden. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Michelle Martin. In a few minutes, we look ahead at 2024 with a veteran political columnist. But first, 
The U.S. often criticizes Israeli settlement activity in the West Bank, but it rarely takes action. President Biden has now sanctioned four Israeli settlers in the Israeli-occupied West Bank who are accused of violence against Palestinians. This comes against the backdrop of the ongoing Israeli-Hamas fighting in Gaza and efforts to work out a temporary ceasefire. For a closer look, we're joined by NPR's Greg Myrie in Tel Aviv. Greg, good morning. Hi, Michelle. So President Biden has issued this executive order against Israeli settlers in the West Bank. Could you just tell us what the significance of this is? So it's mostly symbolic, but it is symbolism that reflects this growing U.S. frustration with Israeli policies. This executive order names these four Israelis. They're accused of violence against Palestinians in the West Bank. It's a chronic problem, and it's been on the rise. Our NPR colleague, Daniel Estrin, spoke with one of those sanctioned, Yanon Levy, who has has a farm in the West Bank. So he's saying uh, that it's hard for him to believe this. It sounds very strange, but he'll check it out. And he says he employs 15 Palestinian workers and that he actually claims to have good relations with them. So Levy also says he has no financial assets in the U.S., no plans to travel to the U.S. So it seems it's mostly about the U.S. sending a public message of disapproval to Israel. And Israel's prime minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, says his government is dealing with this issue, though in general his government is extremely supportive of the settlers. So let's turn to Gaza now. What are the latest developments in the fighting there? Yeah, Israel's defense minister, Yoav Gallant, went into southern Gaza yesterday to the city that's been the main battleground, Han Yunus. He declared Hamas forces had been defeated there, and his visit seemed to support his claim. Um, he also said Israel will push further south, all the way to the border of Gaza, specifically the town of Rafah on the border with Egypt. And this can really pose some complications because so many Palestinian civilians are crammed into southern Gaza, specifically Rafa, but Gallant certainly gave the impression the Israeli military remains on the offensive. So what does this mean for these efforts to work out a temporary ceasefire in Gaza, another one? Yeah, Michelle, there's both ongoing fighting and ongoing efforts for a ceasefire. Hamas says it's studying the proposal. We're expecting to hear from them fairly soon. Uh, this plan could include a ceasefire that might last for up to several weeks, with Hamas releasing some Israeli hostages and Israel freeing some Palestinian prisoners. Now, we should note the working assumption is that Hamas leaders in Gaza are in tunnels beneath Khan Yunus or in that area. We can't independently confirm this, but it's quite possible the Hamas leaders are looking at this ceasefire plan below the city while Israeli troops are above ground in the city. So with Israel claiming these advances, how would you describe the fighting strength of Hamas at this point? Hamas is still fighting back, and it's inflicting casualties on Israeli troops. The group also still has its tunnel network in southern Gaza, which allows it to ambush Israeli forces uh, on occasion. But Israel says it has eliminated many Hamas commanders, and the group is not fighting in cohesive units. It's more small-scale, guerrilla-type operations. Also, Hamas rocket attacks into Israel have dropped off dramatically. Hamas fired thousands of rockets in the early days of the war back in October. A volley of about a dozen rockets was directed at Tel Aviv on Monday, and Israel shot them down. And I only mention this because it was the first rocket attack on the city in weeks. That is NPR's Greg Myrie in Tel Aviv. Greg, thank you. Sure thing, Michelle.
Last week in Manchester, New Hampshire, Dennis Kelly, age 71, cast his vote in the primary and braced himself for a likely rematch this fall of the 2020 election. Joe Biden versus Donald Trump. There's a lack of choice. The two parties have broken the system, and that's my feeling. I'm 71. I've been voting since my first opportunity to vote, and this is the worst choices that I've seen in my lifetime. So let's get a little history of how some of the parties tried for different choices over the past couple of years and then seem to be settling for the same. Jonathan Martin is a senior political columnist at Politico, and I followed his writing for years. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Steve. Uh, I want to begin by playing some tape from President Biden during his first campaign. This is the spring of 2020. Here's how he described himself. Look, I view myself as a bridge, not as anything else. There's an entire generation of leaders you saw stand behind me. They are the future of this country. When he set a bridge, I I think there were people who vaguely assumed Biden meant he would serve only one term because of his age. (laughs) Steve, I was there the night he made that comment. That was in Detroit, Michigan, the night before the Michigan primary and shortly before COVID. Mm -hmm. He was standing in front of uh, Kamala Harris, Gretchen Whitmer and Cory Booker, uh, three rising stars, three people who want to be president themselves one day. And I can assure you, all three of them took the word bridge the same way you did. And here we are in 2024, and Biden is not passing the baton. He's trying to run for four more years into his mid-80s. How hard did Democrats try to find a replacement over the last couple of years? I think when we look back, one of the great moments in this period of modern political history will turn out to be the aftermath of the 2022 midterms. Because of the Democrats' unexpected success, Joe Biden effectively got a grace period from Democrats. I think a lot of Democrats, Steve, were lined up ready to hand him a gold watch, but the red wave never came. Democrats had a better midterm than expected. And collectively, a lot of the leadership of the party, the governors, the senators, the donors, basically went mute. And then you're into 2023, and guess what? If not pushed, Joe Biden was never going to voluntarily step down and not run again. And Biden effectively is running unchallenged in 24 with really dismal approval numbers. Um, There was a period where we would read sometimes of private meetings where Democrats talked about finding some other person, maybe a red state governor. There were various names floated. All that's passed, obviously. So how are Democrats talking now about minimizing the vulnerabilities of their candidate if they can? Well, it's going to be a Rose Garden campaign like we've never seen before in which, you know, I think he's going to be selective in his travel. I think he will deploy a battalion of surrogates. And Steve, I'd be very surprised if there are any general election debates this fall. I just have a hard time seeing the Biden campaign wanting to expose him to that kind of uh, uncertainty and spontaneity. You did some reporting last year in which you quoted some Democrats saying, we want to present ourselves not just as a guy, but as a team. Try to think of it as a team. That's right. No, no. I I think that's the hope that Democrats can say, look, you're voting for somebody who's got a team of people around who are competent, who are capable, who are getting significant things done for the country. This is not just a vote for Biden. And by the way, here's the alternative team. But Steve, that's tough because most Americans think that they're voting for the name on the ballot, pure and simple. 
Well, let's talk about the other team, because yep. after the attack on the Capitol on January 6, 2021, when Donald Trump was still president, there were a lot of Republicans who fiercely criticized him. And let's listen to two of them, Kevin McCarthy, then the Republican leader in the House, and Mitch McConnell, the Republican leader in the Senate. The president bears responsibility for Wednesday's attack on Congress by mob rioters. The mob was fed lies. They were provoked by the president and other powerful people. How long did it take them to come around? Well, in the case of McCarthy, it was a matter of, of days. He was back at Mar-a-Lago before January 21 was over. McConnell's a more complicated story because he, he detests Trump. He hasn't talked to Trump since Trump was in the White House. But obviously, McConnell's a partisan through and through and is going to do whatever it takes uh, to try to uh, take back control of the Senate, even if that means supporting a former president that he detests. Um, but there's no question that for a period of days after January 6th, it did look like Trump was vulnerable and he could be sort of excised uh, from the Republican Party, uh, namely through impeachment and conviction. And of course he was impeached, but then when it went to the Senate, there were enough Senate Republicans who said that you can't uh, convict a president who's now out of office. And I think that's a seminal moment in which Trump effectively uh, slips the noose. Uh, if they find the, uh, you know, 17 Republican votes needed to get the two thirds for conviction, Steve Trump can't run for office again. And that's effectively the end of his career. But I think the story there is the story of our times. The elected Republican leadership class was not willing to cross their voters. And their voters like Trump. They don't care about Trump's transgressions. And the leaders defer to the voters. Um, there was an impression over the last year or two that people with money on the Republican side would yes. have liked someone else. Yeah, look, I just don't think it matters that much, at least in the Trump or who the donors like, um, because that doesn't translate to votes. Uh, Nikki Haley's going to have plenty of money uh, for the final weeks of the campaign in South Carolina. I just don't think it matters that much because there is a locked in voter preference for Trump. How seriously do you take the various scenarios of a third party run? I take it very seriously. In fact, Steve, I think Joe Biden's bigger challenge than Donald Trump is the threat of a third party. I think Biden could, could beat Trump head to head for the same reasons that he won in 2020. I think Biden's challenge is it's not a head to head race. And so whether it's on Biden's left flank in the form of Jill Stein and Cornell West or on his right flank uh, in the form of whoever the no, no labels folks put out there, I think Biden's biggest challenge is losing a thousand votes here, a thousand votes there. And that's the margin of victory in a place like Michigan or Wisconsin. Jonathan Martin of Politico, thanks very much. Thanks, Steve. This is NPR News. Good morning. You have made it to the end of the week with 90.9 WBUR. We're following news this morning of sanctions imposed by President Biden on four Israelis accused of attacking Palestinians in the West Bank. Also, experts predict a Labor Department jobs report expected out later this morning will show continued gains. And in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, it's been nearly a year since a Norfolk Southern train derailed in Ohio and authorities conducted a controlled burn of thousands of pounds of chemicals 
We'll look at how people there have fared since. It's 719. Hey, it's Ben Brock Johnson, executive producer of WBUR Podcasts. My mom turns 81 years old this month. She is many things, a poet, an activist, an extremely creative cook who makes pink bread with my daughter every week. Among her tireless edits, her experiments in the kitchen, good and not so good, her efforts to raise awareness about our climate, my mom somehow raised me and my older brother. This Valentine's Day, I'm thinking about what Herculean feats decades of love can do. I'm so thankful for what my mom has given me and for what she's given the world. If there's someone from your life and you want to tell them how much you love them this Valentine's Day in a meaningful way, consider sending them Winston Flowers from WBUR. And your support will help us tell more stories every day. Check out our choices at WBUR.org. Mostly overcast today. Highs will be near 40. Temperatures fall to lows around 30 tonight, and there's a slight chance of snow. Tomorrow, highs only in the mid-30s, but it'll be mostly sunny. Clear skies on Sunday. We'll have highs in the upper 30s. It's 39 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fisher Investments, Fisher's dedicated team of specialists provide resources on investing, retirement income, estate planning, and more. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investing in securities involves the risk of loss. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement designed by gastroenterologists to help relieve occasional bloating, gas, and abdominal discomfort. More at alignprobiotics.com. From Imaginable Futures, celebrating the hard work, commitment, and achievements of the one in five college students who are parents. More at imaginablefutures.com. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Leila Faldil. Russian cellist Anastasia Kobekina fell in love with Venice when she visited after pandemic restrictions were first lifted. For her debut album on the Sony Classical label out today, she shares impressions of the postcard-perfect destination that's also a city threatened by rising waters. On the album, Venetian-born Vivaldi gets a makeover. But Kobekina also puts her stamp on works by Barbara Strozzi, who was an independent woman composer in 17th century Venice, as well as contemporary pieces by electronic music giant Brian Eno, Caroline Shaw, and the Ukrainian composer Valentin Silvestov. I asked her about this musical journey through the centuries. I had this uh, fascination for the city, for its different faces, characters, and this constant changing scenery. Music has a power to evoke the memories, to make them fresh again and let you live those moments uh, over and over. This music that you chose for the album, I mean, some of the music is three or four hundred years old when it was composed, and some of it's modern. What connects all these pieces? To me, it's a portrait of this place. 
and this nostalgia, you know, this is, I wouldn't mark it as a happy music. <laughs> it's, there are a lot of, uh, to me, quite heartbreaking melodies. To me, Venice is not only this bright side of the carnival. It's a lot about this city also disappearing. Disappearing in the sense because of the water? Yeah, because of the ecological reasons. You open the album with Monteverde, and then you close the album also with a variation of that by your father. What was it like performing your father's music on this album? Is he the person that made you fall in love with music? Well, for all my childhood, I heard him composing through the door, you know, singing uh, melodies that he just freshly uh, wrote down. You know, I, I guess I know his uh, language and music. It's such a also a luxury to <laughs> when I have a new project. I can just ring him and ask, oh, you see, I have uh, here the problem. Would you be inspired to, <laughs> to write something? And uh, he wrote these um, variations of cries based on the theme by Monteverdi, uh, Ariadna. It was very emotional and almost over-the-edge uh, experience because he explores really this tragedy and drama spanning the different centuries. Mm. The idea that we, uh, we humans, we cry about the same things, doesn't matter in which century we are. You use your instrument in non-traditional ways, tapping the side of the cello like a drum. I mean, if you could talk about the way you use your instrument. I would say that I would love to go away from the cello sound, you know, to come close to the voice, to the incredible variety of each human voice. A lot of tapping, a lot of uh, wild plugging. Sometimes during recording I felt like, oh wow, that was really scandal. Really? It's, it's too much. And then I go to the control room and listen. And it's actually just enough. <laughs> when I first heard your recording of the third movement of Vivaldi's RV 419 Cello Concerto in A minor, I couldn't tell at first that this music was 300 years old. Because it sounded so contemporary. You hear drum and bass, and it felt almost jazzy. <laughs> probably one of my favorite tracks on the album because I keep the memories of this energy that was in the room and how we experimented, improvising here and there and, you know, uh, we were just uh, swinging <laughs> and uh, it's not orthodox Vivaldi. <laughs> You have a piece on the album by a Ukrainian composer, Valentin Silvestrov. He's the country's most famous living composer, now a refugee, having fled Ukraine in March 2022 because of the war there. You're a Russian artist. 
I'm curious about the choice to include this piece on this album and also what it's like putting music out into the world. I mean, that's not the only war going on, but it is a war that directly impacts you and um, it definitely impacts Silvestrov. To me, of course, I have friends uh, in Ukraine and musicians that I'm playing with together and I just uh, felt I couldn't keep silent uh, for my friends. Of course, by my name and my nationality, I'm representing, of course, Russia. And to me, it was important to say that there is uh, people like me who are absolutely disgusted by what is led by the Russian government against Ukrainian people. And I took opportunity always to play Ukrainian music and carry it on. This is an album about Venice, both real and imagined, as you described it. Is there any particular piece on this album that connects you back to Venice? I would say that each of these pieces have a very concrete image or uh, some uh, microsecond moment, you mm-hmm. know, from that trip. It's very personal, and uh, I hope that those who would listen to the album would make their own uh, imaginary Venice. Thank you so much for your time, and congratulations on your album. Thank you. That's cellist Anastasia Kovekina. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next. Then coming up at 7.45 on WBUR's Morning Edition, former President Donald Trump, the frontrunner to be the Republican candidate for president, is pledging to block the sale of U.S. steel to the Japanese company Nippon Steel. We'll look at the history of anti-Japanese sentiment in the U.S. It's 7.29. Join here and now's Robin Young on Tuesday, February 6th at City Space for a conversation with Pulitzer Prize finalist Daniel Mason. He'll be talking about his hit novel, Northwoods. Get tickets at WBUR.org slash events. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Arts Thursdays at Harvard. Back with free public art events open to all every Thursday night. Harvard.edu slash Arts Thursdays. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer says he expects the Senate to vote next week on legislation to bolster security and immigration policy at the U.S. southern border. Conversations are ongoing. Some issues still need resolution, but we are getting very close. Republicans in Congress have said they won't support President Biden's latest requests for billions of dollars in U.S. aid to Ukraine and Israel without addressing the border. President Biden is looking for a big win in tomorrow's Democratic presidential primary in South Carolina. Mayan Schechter with South Carolina Public Radio says Biden is expected to get a lot of support from black voters. African-Americans here make up about 26 percent of the state's population, which is almost double what it is nationally at nearly 14 percent. And black voters here do make up a majority of the state's Democratic Party, accounting for somewhere around 60 percent of the base. And that's three times higher, actually, than the percentage of, of black Democrats who voted in 2020, according to Pew Research. The Republican primary in South Carolina is February 24th. Polling shows former President Donald Trump continues to lead the state's former governor, Nikki Haley, by double digits in her home state. 
This is NPR News from Washington. This is WBUR in Boston. I'm Rupa Shinoy. Students are out of school for the 11th day in Newton as the teacher strike there continues. Meanwhile, the Newton School Committee unanimously voted last night to use four days of February vacation week as make-up school days. That delayed voting on other make-up options, including April vacation week and time at the end of June. WBUR's Carrie Young reports. Students will still get Monday, February 19th off because it's President's Day, which is a federal holiday. Committee member Barry Greenstein acknowledged that there are families who have non-refundable travel plans for one or both vacation weeks. I do think it's really important that we consider the impact on all people, but the situation we have is unprecedented and we can't risk not being able to make those days up. As a very last resort, the school district may consider holding school on weekends in order to meet the state requirement that districts have at least 180 school days. The school committee also decided that students would not be penalized for absences during the new makeup time. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Carrie Young. Massachusetts lawmakers are one step closer to sending Governor Healy a gun reform bill. Last night, Senate lawmakers passed their version of the bill after hours of debate. The SAFER Act would tighten the state's ban on assault weapons and crack down on guns without serial numbers. The House passed its gun reform bill last fall. It includes even more restrictions. Both sides need to reach a compromise before sending the proposal to Healy's desk. This weekend, legendary Cambridge folk venue Club Passim inaugurates its first-ever festival devo- devoted to black musicians. The We Black Folk Fest wants to reclaim the black roots of folk music. WBUR's Amelia Mason has more. We Black Folk Fest was the brainchild of Cliff Notes, a Boston rapper and singer who got involved with Club Passim through a diversity initiative called the Folk Collective. Cliff Notes says they always loved folk music, but never thought a place like Club Passim was for them. For most of my friend groups, we grew up in hip-hop, and this was worlds away from us, when in reality it was in our backyard. For We Black Folk Fest, Cliff Notes tapped 12 mostly local Black musicians to take over the iconic stage where Bob Dylan got his start. The event is this Sunday and next. In-person tickets are sold out, but the festival can be streamed online. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Amelia Mason. It's 7.34. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Scrub-A-Dub Car Wash, family-owned since 1966, offering Scrub-A-Dub Unlimited, designed to keep your car Scrub-A-Dub clean anytime you want. Men and women's hockey are off for the All-Star break. The Boston professional women's hockey team skates against Montreal Sunday afternoon at home. And Sunday night, the Celtics try to brush off last night's tough loss to the Lakers. They'll take on the Memphis Grizzlies. A high near 40 today under mostly cloudy skies. Still overcast tonight as it falls to around 30. Mostly sunny tomorrow with highs in the mid-30s. Sunny skies on Sunday. Highs will be in the upper 30s. It's 39 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies from nonprofits to the Fortune 500 find food for meetings and company events with online ordering and 24-7 live support. Learn more at easycater.com. From Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates, all from a single platform. Learn more at indeed.com NPR. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. 
It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil. And I'm Michelle Martin. Tomorrow marks a year since a Norfolk Southern train derailed in East Palestine, Ohio, near the Pennsylvania border, releasing toxic chemicals. In the weeks that followed, doctors and health officials were trying to figure out what to do about residents who were sick from possible chemical exposure. Julie Grant from Pennsylvania's environmental news show, The Allegheny Front, looks at what they did and did not do and what could be the long-term health consequences for the community. It was around 9 in the evening on February 3rd when the Norfolk Southern train derailed in East Palestine. Shauna Lewis and her family live near the tracks where dozens of smoldering rail cars released toxic chemicals and flames lit up the sky. My daughter was panicked and it's just scary, you know. You don't know if the whole town's going to blow up, you just don't know. Later, residents were evacuated, and a huge plume of black smoke filled the air as officials conducted a controlled burn of vinyl chloride, a carcinogen, in an effort to avoid a massive explosion. From the very beginning, people complained of rashes, headaches, and swollen, itchy eyes. Many health officials weren't sure if they should test for chemical exposures. Because of political wrangling, it took two weeks for the Centers for Disease Control to arrive in East Palestine. That's well past the point of acute chemical exposure for a toxin like vinyl chloride. If you have questions during the presentation, please put them into the chat. A webinar held by the Pennsylvania Department of Health was just one of the steps health officials took during the year to try to calm the health concerns of residents. Dr. Mike Lynch, medical toxicologist at the Pittsburgh Poison Center, told area doctors that breath or urine tests for chemical exposure were not clinically useful and not recommended for patients. With confidence, you can tell them that there is not a chemical test that they should be seeking either from you or elsewhere at this time. But some public health experts say not conducting widespread biological testing was a loss for the community. Dr. Maureen Lichtfeld is dean of the Graduate School of Public Health at the University of Pittsburgh. She says health responders should gather as much data as possible, including samples of people's breath, blood, or urine when there's an emergency. So if we're not quick enough or early enough to capture that, we're losing the opportunity to measure directly what's happening in the people. Federal health officials did conduct an assessment of chemical exposures. In that ACE survey of 700 people in Ohio and Pennsylvania, residents reported difficulty breathing, headaches, and other ailments. One of those residents, Zhuzia Jenis, has been frustrated and says more needs to be done. Her nine-year-old son's urine test conducted a couple of months after the derailment showed markers for vinyl chloride. They came in and said these ACE surveys showed that you guys are sick and yeah, the symptoms match chemical exposure and then we're just not doing anything about it. Some researchers are now working on small health studies in the community. However, Molly Jacobs says that's not the same as a coordinated health response. Jacobs is an environmental epidemiologist who works with the Cancer and Environment Network of Southwestern Pennsylvania. She says people in East Palestine need a health registry like one created in New York after 9-11 to answer questions about any health problems that arise and their connection to chemical exposures. Is my infertility that I'm experiencing, are the birth defects of my child, is my cancer related to this train disaster? And others in East Palestine want to know who will be responsible if those health problems actually do occur years later. Those are public health questions residents may put to President Biden when he visits East Palestine this month. For NPR News, I'm Julie Grant in Ohio.
We've been speaking to Palestinians about their vision for a future in Gaza. Today, we hear from Yara Sharif, a Palestinian architect in London. She's co-founder of the Palestine Regeneration Team and Architects for Gaza. Over 60% of the building in Gaza have been destroyed, but it's also the heritage, the culture, the collective memory. So it's important for us to rethink how to rebuild, how to accommodate one of the highest densely populated spots on earth. Do we go vertical? Do we go horizontal? You've got an urban fabric, you've got a coastal fabric, you've got a rural fabric. Each one requires a different way of looking at it. If you could say more about that and whether you can rebuild what is lost when it comes to the collective memory of a place. Historic buildings have been destroyed, but also there is kind of a cultural social practices within the neighborhoods that have been taking place that we lost. The culture of living on the roof, the culture of the bamboo huts that the Gazans are very famous for, the informal market that is on the beach with its corn and barbecue, a very important, very little details of every day. With this destruction, we have lost a lot of those aspects because also the visual memory has been overtaken by images of destruction and ruins and nothingness. At least we need to be aware of what we've lost. Maybe we need to even mark those spaces that have been lost that we will never be able to reclaim. What do you envision if you could have what you wanted in a future Gaza? I don't think it is fair for anyone to come and kind of dictate a top-down plan to say, okay, this is the future of Gaza, this has to be done. When we think about reconstruction, we were thinking about innovative building materials, but maybe also build on the creative initiatives that the local residents have already been doing. Gazans have been very creative. They've already tested out a lot of innovative materials that are sustainable and more responsive to the climate and to the daily practices, but also to the difficulties of the siege. We need to bear those in mind, like how could we work without cement? How could we work with earth? How could we work with clay? All these are aspects that the Gazans have already thought about. You were saying sustainable materials in creative ways, partly because things like cement are subject to blockade and you can't get them in to build. Yes, cement is not allowed. It has not been allowed. But also there is another aspect is that the city is left in ruins and we should equally see ruins as a building material. Mm. Whether it is the reconstruction bars from the damaged concrete buildings to the corrugated metals from the refugee camp, the bricks, everything that we could get hold of becomes a building material that either can work towards rebuilding home or towards rebuilding schools. But Sharif says she's worried about permanent displacement. She's seen far-right-wing Israelis post about resettling Gaza. A conference was even held a few days ago that far-right government ministers attended, calling for just that. Now, the prime minister of Israel, though, says there will be no permanent presence, although he wants Israel to control security. I'm very scared that you see a lot of these settler colonial projects that are putting up schemes for erasing the city and starting with these kind of new resorts. She says any reconstruction in Gaza must be led by Palestinians who live there. Any scheme that is going to come from the outside is going to create just another faceless city. Yara, thank you so much for joining us and for speaking with me. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. That was Yara Sharif, senior lecturer at the University of Westminster.
This is NPR News. Coming up at the top of the hour here on WBUR's Morning Edition, for the first time this election cycle, President Biden will officially appear on a primary ballot on Saturday in South Carolina. It'll be the first test of his support among black voters. Near 40 and mostly cloudy today, around 30 and still overcast tonight. Skies partially clear for a mostly sunny day tomorrow. It'll be in the mid-30s, sunny on Sunday in the upper 30s. It's 39 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Peabody Essex Museum, presenting Our Time on Earth. Featuring creative collaborations from 12 countries, this exhibition uses immersive digital artworks and natural materials to reimagine the future of our planet. Visit on February 17th for opening day art making and events. Learn more at PEM.org. The state's cannabis industry grew 20 percent last year. Data from the Cannabis Control Commission showed dispensaries in Massachusetts sold a record $1.8 billion worth of product in 2023. Most of that came from recreational shops. Co-working space company WeWork is shutting down its Back Bay location. The company is also not paying rent at two of its other Boston offices. The rent issues come after WeWork filed for bankruptcy last November. According to data obtained by the Boston Business Journal, the company has withheld more than a million dollars in rent in Boston so far. Travelers flying in and out of Logan Airport to European countries could extend their trips by adding a layover in Iceland for free. Air Carrier Play is offering the option to passengers at no additional cost. All of Play's flights out of Logan already stop in Iceland for a short period of time. The airline says the free extension does not include lodging. It's 7.45. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Public Welfare Foundation committed to advancing a transformative approach to justice that is community-led, restorative, and racially just. Learn more at publicwelfare.org. From the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil. And I'm Michelle Martin. The planned acquisition of U.S. steel by the Japanese company Nippon Steel has prompted alarm among some lawmakers, including Senator John Fetterman, the Pennsylvania Democrat. I just have to say it's absolutely outrageous that they have sold themselves to a foreign nation. His comments are reminiscent of things politicians were saying back in the 1980s. Our colleagues at The Indicator from Planet Money, Darian Woods and Wei Lin Wang, take a trip down memory lane to explain. After the destruction of World War II, Japan's economy underwent what's called the Japanese economic miracle. Starting in the 1950s, the country went on a tear, becoming the world's second largest economy. And the U.S. played a role in making this happen. Kenji Kushida runs Japan Research and Programming at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Japan was the closest ally to the U.S. in the Cold War in Asia. So the U.S. was very happy to help the Japanese economy grow. By some estimates, the U.S. was buying more than a third of Japanese-made stuff in the 1970s. This included consumer electronics, and it also included cars. High gas prices meant American car owners wanted smaller and more fuel-efficient vehicles. Those are the cars coming from Japan. 
And then in the early 1980s, the U.S. fell into a recession. Japanese exports were surging in the U.S., while the Japanese market remained more closed off to American goods. The recession was especially hard on U.S. automakers, which were hit by plant closures and mass layoffs. Why is it that you lost your job? Oh, it's your company, but your company let go of you because they were getting outcompeted. And at the time, it was Japanese companies. There were reports of bumper stickers that read Toyota, Datsun, Honda, Pearl Harbor. There were protests where people smashed Japanese cars with baseball bats. The backlash against Japanese companies made its way into policy. There was a flurry of trade restrictions and other agreements aimed at fixing the trade imbalance. Two things happened that ultimately brought an end to this period of intense trade friction. Japanese real estate and stock prices had gotten very inflated by the late 80s. When the bubble burst, the Japanese economy entered a deep malaise. And the second thing that happened in the 1990s was the U.S. economy staged a comeback, powered by Silicon Valley and the computer industry. This was the era of Microsoft Windows domination. The fear that Japan would take over the American economy receded. But today, with Nippon Steel trying to buy U.S. steel, a new round of anxieties is coming to the surface. U.S. Steel leadership wants to sell the company to Nippon Steel. But the Steelworkers Union says U.S. Steel is being greedy, and it doubts Nippon Steel will honor the commitments in its labor agreements. Meanwhile, President Biden's national economic advisor said the deal, quote, appears to deserve serious scrutiny, end quote. Experts expect this deal to come under review by the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States. This is a committee with representatives from departments like the Treasury, Homeland Security and Defense. And it looks at foreign investment deals that involve national security. This review process could stretch on for months, and that could add delays to the deal in a year that's already complicated by the presidential election. U.S. Steel is headquartered in Pennsylvania, a key battleground state. This could make the fate of this storied American company and the state of U.S.-Japan relations into a political flashpoint. Darian Woods, Waylon Wong, and PR News. Support for Planet Money comes from Charles Schwab committed to putting clients first with financial consultants ready to serve clients and 24-7 live help. Learn more at schwab.com. This is NPR News. It's a Friday on WBUR. Coming up at 820 here on Morning Edition, the Labor Department delivers the first monthly jobs report of the new year this morning. Forecasters expect to see continued job gains and another month of very low unemployment. It's 749. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Medical Center, modeling a new kind of excellence in healthcare, built on clinical expertise and equity. Learn more about rewriting healthcare at bmc.org. Sending your Valentine Winston flowers from WBUR creates stories that have a meaningful impact across our community. I'm Lisa Mullins. Send your gift nearly anywhere in New England, and your support will bring you stories that matter to you. Order now to save 10% on all four choices, including two dozen long-stemmed red roses. Choose the perfect gift at wbur.org. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Friday morning. Ukrainian officials say Russia is refusing to turn over the bodies of prisoners of war allegedly killed in a plane plane crash. Tomorrow marks the one-year anniversary of a train carrying dangerous chemicals derailing and catching fire in East Palestine, Ohio. 
And schools are closed in Newton for an 11th day today as the teacher strike there continues. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Explo, part magic, part summer enrichment program for curious kids and teens. For dates and campuses, visit explo.org summer. Partly sunny and near 40 today. Temperatures fall to around 30 tonight, and there's a slight brief chance of snow. Mostly sunny and mid-30s on Saturday, sunny and upper 30s on Sunday. It's 40 degrees in Boston. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldin. And I'm Michelle Martin. This week, Republican presidential candidate Nikki Haley disclosed that she recently was the target of swatting attempts at her family home in South Carolina. She joins a growing list of public and private people targeted by this potentially dangerous hoax. And now there are concerns that the tactic may be becoming a feature of political violence in this country. NPR's domestic extremism correspondent Odette Youssef is with us now to tell us more about this. Good morning, Odette. Good morning, Michelle. So could you just remind us what swatting is and why is it called that? Sure. Swatting is when someone makes a hoax call about a crime occurring with the intention of drawing a massive law enforcement presence, including SWAT teams, to a certain location. And in some instances, this has actually led to deaths. This is a fear tactic that really began in the gaming community around 15 years ago. It then migrated to the realm of extremists who were using it to intimidate and harass their perceived enemies. And so what's notable is that we're now hearing about this much more regularly in the news. Does that mean it's on the rise? We don't have good numbers, Michelle, on swatting over time to show a clear trend. These incidents tend to be handled by local law enforcement, so it's a decentralized phenomenon. There was a rash of these calls over the holidays targeting multiple members of Congress, um, billionaire George Soros, and other public figures. The FBI is paying closer attention now. In May of last year, the agency launched a database to start collecting information about swatting occurrences. The FBI says it's tracked more than 500 incidents so far. That's within an eight-month period. We just don't have earlier numbers to compare that to. But is there a sense that this is linked to the increasing political polarization in this country? I mean, especially now that we are in an election year. We've seen reports that are linking those things. But at this point, some say that's still speculation. Jared Holt is uh, with the Institute for Strategic Dialogue. And he says that we just don't know enough about who's behind these hoaxes and what their motivations are to be able to call it a trend yet in political violence. People that do it often do it a lot. A single individual could do hundreds of calls. And whenever they get reactions, they do it more. And, you know, there are other factors, Michelle, that also muddy the picture. For example, swattings have targeted people on the right and on the left. So there's no clear political divide. A man in Wisconsin says he was swatted more than 40 times after he said on social media that he didn't like a certain comedian. And the FBI recently arrested a teenager in California, according to reporting in Wired, who allegedly was running a swatting for hire scheme. But Odette, I understand that you have been looking into a pattern of swatting activity since the fall of 2022, where schools in virtually every state have been targeted. What can you tell us about that? That's right. So we were looking at a a subset of swatting calls that follow a particular pattern in which the caller has an accent. They claim that uh, there's an active shooter in a school. 
and they mask their location by using internet phone numbers and VPN services. Now, the FBI has been investigating this for a year now, but we haven't had any public update on where that is. But a couple of interesting things. Someone claiming to be the swatter began reaching out to me on social media after our stories came out. Now, I couldn't conclusively verify that this was the swatter, but they were sending angry messages saying that I was the reason that their access to a particular voice over internet service was blocked. And they also sent messages indicating that their swatting campaign was motivated by a hatred for the U.S. and for England. Now, Meta, Facebook's parent company, shut off those accounts, but declined to share further information about those accounts with me. So where does this leave school districts and local law enforcement agencies? You've told us they are the ones who tend to have to respond to these hoax calls. So first of all, you know, parents and students and school staff who've experienced lockdowns because of these calls have in many cases been rightly scared. This can be traumatizing. But for local law enforcement agencies that have had to respond to these calls, this has been a a kind of learning curve. I talked to Sergeant Chris Otto. He investigated one of these incidents that occurred more than a year ago in Hancock County, Ohio, where a high school was targeted. It kind of tested our capabilities and our knowledge and, you know, our response. That's something we obviously want to do. We don't want to plan anything like this. It's highlighted areas maybe where we can maybe improve I mean, what worked and what didn't work. But Otto's investigation also highlighted the strain that this can put on local agencies. He actually tallied up what the dollar cost was for this response because this drew police fire and EMS departments from the city, the state, the county, neighboring townships, and may have necessitated overtime. And he came up to around $10,000 to respond to what ultimately was a hoax. That's NPR's domestic extremism correspondent, Odette Youssef. Odette, thank you so much for sharing this reporting with us. Thank you. Parents, if your kids are lobbying you to get a dog, this next story may strengthen their case. A new study finds they make children, especially girls, more active. NPR's Maria Godoy reports. In the study, researchers followed 600 children over a three-year period, starting at preschool age. They tracked their physical activity using monitors that measured things like how fast, long, and intensely they moved. They also surveyed parents about their kids' activities and whether they had a family dog. During the study, 58 kids got a dog and, sadly, 31 kids lost a dog. That created a natural experiment for researchers to see how dog ownership affected the kids' activity levels, which went up, especially in girls. What we found is that adding a dog to the household increased young girls' light intensity physical activity by 52 minutes a day or almost an hour, so that's quite substantial. Emma Adams of the Telethon Kids Institute and the University of Western Australia led the study. She says the impact of losing a dog was also big on girls. Their light intensity physical activity decreased by 62 minutes a day. The study is the first to look at how dog ownership impacts kids' activity levels over time. Katie Potter is a researcher at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. She says other studies have also suggested there are gender differences. We're not sure why, if it's something about how girls and boys differentially interact with or bond with their dogs. So we definitely want to learn more about this. Studies show girls experience a bigger drop in physical activity as they get older than boys do. Potter says if researchers can find ways to use dogs to get and keep girls moving more, that could have a real impact on public health. Maria Godoy, NPR News. 
It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldin. And I'm Michelle Martin. Around 40 today under skies with a mix of sun and clouds. About 30 tonight and it'll be mostly cloudy with a slight chance of snow. Mid-30s tomorrow and we'll finally have a mostly sunny day. Then all sun on Sunday. It'll be in the upper 30s. It's 40 degrees in Boston and we're coming up on 8 o'clock. I'm WBUR arts and culture reporter Cristela Guerra, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. President Biden has imposed financial and travel penalties on four Israelis accused of attacks on Palestinians in the West Bank. It's Friday, February 2nd. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, Human Rights Watch is accusing Israel of using food deprivation as a weapon of war. Also this hour, we return to East Palestine, Ohio, to mark a year since the fiery derailment there of a train carrying hazardous chemicals. The cleanup is ongoing. There's a lot of progress that has been made, but there is still so much more to be done. Plus, a festival of black musicians in Cambridge aims to raise awareness of a part of the folk world that's long been overlooked. To this day, I can still like count on one hand the number of bills that I have played where I'm sharing a bill with another Black person singing and playing guitar. Mostly cloudy and near 40 today. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. Later today, President Biden and the First Lady will attend a dignified transfer at Dover Air Force Base in Delaware. It's for the three Army reservists killed in Jordan last weekend. As NPR's Tamara Keith reports, the defense secretary and relatives of the soldiers will also be there. Sergeants William Jerome Rivers, Kennedy Landon Saunders, and Brianna Alexandria Moffat were killed in a drone attack on a military outpost near the Syrian border. Iran-backed militants have claimed responsibility. At the National Prayer Breakfast this week, President Biden said he had spoken with each of the families and was praying for them and their lost loved ones. They risked it all. And we'll never forget the sacrifices and service to our country, that the dozens of service members who were wounded and are recovering now. Every dignified transfer is solemn and largely private. This will be the second one Biden has attended as president. Tamara Keith, NPR News, the White House. President Biden visited a United Auto Workers Union Hall near Detroit, Michigan yesterday. The UAW has endorsed his presidential campaign. But as Biden got near the hall, scores of protesters bunched nearby. They're demanding a ceasefire in Gaza. <laughs> Protesters have shown up at many of Biden's events demanding a halt to the war in Gaza between Israel and Hamas. Last week, Arab-American leaders in Michigan refused to meet Biden's top campaign manager. They cited the more than 27,000 Palestinians who have been killed by Israeli attacks since the war started. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer says the Senate is on track to vote on a bill that includes aid to Ukraine and Israel and for border security measures. But hardline House Republicans say they oppose it. Even if it passes the Senate, House Speaker Mike Johnson might not even bring the bill up for debate. 
Testimony continues today in the trial of a Michigan woman charged in connection with a school shooting committed by her son. Jennifer Crumbly faces four counts of involuntary manslaughter. From member station WDET, Alex McLennan has more. Crumbly's 15-year-old son killed four people at Oxford High School in 2021. In his mother's trial, prosecutors have pointed to text messages her son sent her, claiming he was seeing demons. When asked by her lawyers on Thursday if she saw those messages, Jennifer Crumbly said, I'm sure I did, but they didn't, they weren't, no, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm sure I saw them, but they just didn't stick out to me until this case. Crumbly says her son had believed their house was haunted since he began playing with a Ouija board in 2015. The prosecution will have a chance to cross-examine the defendant today. Jennifer Crumbly's husband, James, will stand trial on identical charges in March. For NPR News, I'm Alex McLennan in Detroit. This is NPR. From WBWAR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Newton students will have to make up lost school time during February vacation week. That news comes as the teacher strike there goes into its 11th school day. Newton's school committee approved the plan yesterday, and it's considering other ways to help students make up classwork. Yesterday, Governor Maura Healy asked a court to intervene in the ongoing contract negotiations. The Trustees of Reservations has laid off 30 people across the state. That's about 10 percent of staff with the conservation nonprofit. The group manages properties including Castle Hill in Ipswich and World's End in Hingham. Organization leaders say the cuts were necessary to reduce a multi-million dollar deficit. Mary Detloff is the organization's spokesperson. She says people flocked to the trustees' properties during the pandemic, but inflation hit hard. You know, we rose to the occasion. We expanded programming across the state. You know, we did see an increase in operational revenue, you know, during the pandemic. But we also saw huge increases in expenses. Detloff says the organization will scale back some operations, but there are no plans for additional layoffs. The Environmental Protection Agency wants to fill an unusual position, an artist-in-residence. The new program intends to incorporate arts and culture into the EPA's efforts to preserve the nation's waterways. WBWAR's Solon Kelleher explains part of our area will be involved. Applications will soon open for an artist-in-residence for the Mystic River watershed, which runs from Arlington to Boston Harbor and is fed by 21 communities. EPA Regional Administrator for New England, David Cash, says this will be a new way to reach locals, whether it's creating dance, sculpture, music, or visual arts. For someone like me, who spends a lot of time reading regulations, communicating about reports, etc., this is a wonderful way to engage the public. The Mystic River resident will be among six artists participating in this collaboration between the EPA and the National Endowment for the Arts. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Solon Kelleher. The official Massachusetts groundhog will not be making any predictions this morning. Mass Audubon says the groundhog named Miss G is experiencing a common hormonal condition that's causing her to lose some hair. Scott McHugh is with the group. He says the condition means Miss G won't be able to make her annual prediction for how long our winter will last. Because we hold ourselves to really the highest standards for wildlife care, we just want to make sure we're taking really good care of this groundhog. And so as a result, we, we feel like we need to keep, keep her indoors this year. Mass Audubon is having a special program featuring Miss G that starts at 10 this morning. But again, she's not making a prediction. It's 8.06.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Scrub-A-Dub Car Wash, cleaning cars since 1966 with 22 New England locations. Learn more about Scrub-A-Dub Unlimited at scrubadub.com. The Lakers beat the Celtics 114-105 to last night at the Garden. The Celtics play again Sunday night at home against the Grizzlies. Mostly cloudy today, we'll have a high of 40. Still cloudy tonight, the low will be around 30. There's a slight chance of snow between 10 and 11 p.m. Tomorrow, mostly sunny with a high in the mid-30s. Sunday, sunny with a high in the upper 30s. It's 40 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include the Charles Stewart Mott Foundation, For nearly a century, supporting efforts to promote a just, equitable, and sustainable society. More at Mott.org. And the listeners who support this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldin. And I'm Michelle Martin. Good morning. We've been closely following the Republican presidential primary contest, so it's easy to forget that there is also a nominating process happening on the Democratic side, too. Yeah, the first where President Biden will actually be on the ballot happens tomorrow in South Carolina. Joining us now to tell us more about this is Mayan Schnechter with South Carolina Public Radio. Mayan, good morning. Good morning. So President Biden is the incumbent, obviously, pretty much unopposed. So going into tomorrow, expected to win. So what will you be looking at once the results are in? And while you're at it, Mayan, why don't you just remind us about why South Carolina is going first this time around? This is new. Sure. So a year ago, the Democratic National Committee, with President Biden's backing, of course, voted to put South Carolina first. It's a nod to the state's diversity, specifically those black voters here who make up about two thirds of the Democratic Party base, much higher, of course, than other early voting states like Iowa and New Hampshire. What I'm really looking at on Saturday is turnout and within that turnout, who shows up and who doesn't show up as they did perhaps maybe four years ago. And I'm watching that turnout for two reasons. One, it could counter this narrative we've heard a lot from either polls or pundits that people in the president's own party just aren't energized this election cycle to back Biden. The other part is that leaders really want to show off this race, especially to doubters in in other states, that South Carolina truly deserves to stay first and especially go first in 2028, where, of course, the stakes may be even higher. So it's important for the party. It's important for the DNC to tell everyone, hey, look, South Carolina is diverse. South Carolina does back Biden. And we are the best state to look at where Democratic voters, particularly black voters, are today. So say more about that, if you would, because as you said, like back. Back in 2020, black Democrats in particular in South Carolina were credited with saving Biden's campaign when, you know, people voted for him there, really pushed him ahead of other strong primary challengers, at least people who looked like they were strong. Could you just say a little bit more about the diversity of the state? Sure. You know, South Carolina is is one of the top fastest growing states in the country. It's still very white, higher than 60 percent. But African-Americans here make up about 26 percent of the state's population, which is almost double what it is nationally at nearly 14 percent. And black voters here do make up a majority of the state's Democratic Party, as I said earlier, accounting for somewhere around 60 percent of the base. And that's three times higher, actually, than the percentage of of black Democrats who voted in 2020, according to Pew Research. So as you've been speaking to voters, what's motivating them to vote? Everyone has their own personal motivator. What I hear a lot from voters are kitchen table issues like health care. 
you know, for instance, I've talked to people who are maybe diabetic or they know someone who's diabetic. And so that $35 insulin cap has been super helpful. That's a concern for so many black South Carolinians here. And that's actually a personal story for Congressman Jim Clyburn, whose late wife was diabetic. There's also Democratic voters who are super motivated after the Supreme Court, which obviously has a conservative tilt because of Trump's nominees. They're very unhappy with the court unwinding abortion rights and what that's meant for states. South Carolina has a, a six-week ban. But I will say the overwhelming reason and, frankly, the biggest concern I hear from a lot of voters is just Trump. They see Trump as undoing a lot of the good that they say Biden has been able to achieve. And as briefly as you can, what are some of the hesitations people in Biden's party have about him there? Age, not listening to their generation, exhausted by another Trump-Biden rematch, and also Israel's war in Gaza are the top issues I hear. That is Mayan Schechter with South Carolina Public Radio. Mayan, thank you. Thank you so much. Misty Allison says East Palestine, Ohio, cannot forget what happened one year ago tomorrow. A Norfolk Southern train full of hazardous chemicals derailed and caught fire about a mile from her home. The crash spewed toxins into the air and water. More and more people got evacuation orders. And for 12 months, Allison asked questions. She went to Congress with the group Moms Clean Air Force to demand tougher rail safety laws. She made a high-profile, if unsuccessful, run for mayor. And a year after the disaster, Allison told me East Palestine is still cleaning up and looking for answers. I am a mom. I have a daughter who is two. Her name is Audrey, and I have a son, Blake. He's eight. Hmm. And I think the biggest thing that I've learned through this entire year is that mothers will stop at nothing to protect their children. Hmm. That drive to protect my kids and my community is really what has fueled my decision in the past year to be an outspoken advocate. And also, I am doing anything that I can to participate in every health study that comes my way. So I can't essentially be a canary in the coal mine to see how this potential exposure is impacting my health and my children's health and ultimately our community's health as well. I imagine your two-year-old daughter doesn't necessarily understand what's going on around her yet. But your son, what does he understand about what happened and what's happening? So thankfully, my daughter is very blissfully ignorant and provides a lot of comedic relief to the family, (laughs) but... (laughs) Two is so cute. (laughs) Yes, it is. Chaotic and cute. But my son is very mindful of everything that's going on. And so we've had a lot of fears and anxieties that have come up in the past year that absolutely breaks my heart as a parent. Mm. For instance, he asked me at one point last year, shortly after coming home from evacuating, he said, mom, are we going to die from living in our own house? Are we going to have to move? Uh, Walking home from school one day, he jumped in a puddle and said, mom, does this puddle have vinyl chloride in it? Am I going to be okay? Wow. And A seven-year-old. Yes, he was seven at the time. He's eight now. Mm -hmm. And even to this day, we had an incident last night where he had a rash on his hands. Now, that could just be from, you know, being in the winter in Ohio and, you know, washing your hands so frequently. Uh, But... You know, he said, is this from something that's going on around town? And so he's so hypervigilant of that. And I would like to be able to say, no, everything is fine. But those concerns are still lingering in the back of our minds. And very honestly, front and center, at least for me as a parent, one year later. 
Do you think your community is safe to live in? I would like to think so, but there is still so much more conflicting information. There are millions of data points from the EPA that suggest that the air is fine, the water is fine. However, there have been so many different independent researchers and wonderful academic researchers that I've been partnering with that are suggesting that there are still some lingering concerns. So you live in East Palestine, you feel safe enough to still live there with your family. But what needs to happen next to make your community safer so that you can tell your son when he asks in the future, is this from potential exposure? No. I am very passionate about having uh, more long-term healthcare research and monitoring. Because in the very beginning, we were essentially told that the train derailment would essentially be probably an inconvenience in our life for a month. And then a month turned into two months, and we're still talking about this a year later. And then also, I strongly feel that there needs to be some frequent indoor air testing, soil testing, and water testing for anyone who wants it. And then I should say, too, that this is a very personal situation, and I think it would be nice if there was relocation assistance for anyone who wants it. Nobody should be forced to stay in an area if they don't feel comfortable. Is there something that others can take away from what happened in East Palestine? There are over 3 million people that are unknowingly at risk due to the transportation of, you know, some of these toxic chemicals and hazardous uh, materials. East Palestine really serves as a cautionary tale. And something that my mom would always tell me is that you need to find a way and not an excuse. Let's roll up our sleeves and figure out how we can make this just a safer world to live in. Misty Allison in East Palestine, Ohio. Thank you for speaking with us. It was my pleasure. Thank you so much. President Joe Biden will be in Dover, Delaware today to attend what is called the Dignified Transfer of the remains of three U.S. service members recently killed in a drone attack in Jordan. One of those soldiers, Sergeant Brianna Moffitt, was remembered yesterday by her high school's junior ROTC group. Georgia Public Broadcasting's Benjamin Payne attended the ceremony. It was five years ago that Brianna Moffitt marched alongside the JROTC at Windsor Forest High School. Present! Arms! Raise! On a sunny but somber day outside school, the Corps' current cadets raised the American flag to half-staff in her honor. Lieutenant Colonel Michael Busteed was Moffitt's JROTC instructor. He addressed a crowd of students, staff, and family members of Moffitt. The minute you met Brianna, you knew she exuded that she was a very kind, loving, bright soul who cared about everyone around her. Standing next to a colorful wreath of flowers in a graduation photo of Moffitt, Busteed remembered his former student as one of his go-to cadets. When things weren't going right, if they were kind of faltering, I knew I could go to Brianna. She'd carry that ball over the goal line. We were having trouble getting our military ball organized. She took the lead, made it happen. And she made lasting friendships. Busteed says that even after Moffitt graduated, she would occasionally return to help cadets learn their drill and prepare for JROTC competitions. I tell my students, you need to choose your friends wisely. They can either bring you forward or pull you back. And everyone that chose Brianna as a friend was brought forward. Moffitt died at just 23 years old, but left an indelible mark on the school community, says Derek Butler. He was principal of the high school when she attended. She had a disposition about her very early on that 
when I saw her in the hall, I, I almost saluted her because she was very serious and very disciplined. And she carried with her those core values that I know her family instilled in her. Core values, he said, like leadership, which she exhibited as a drum major for the high school marching band. Moffitt's former band director, Stephen Johnson, also honored her at the gathering, not through words, but music, playing his trombone to end the ceremony for Sergeant Brianna Moffitt. For NPR News, I'm Benjamin Payne in Savannah, Georgia. This is NPR News. Good morning. You've made it to the end of the week with WBUR. We're following news this morning of sanctions imposed by President Biden on four Israelis accused of attacking Palestinians in the West Bank. Also, experts predict a Labor Department's jobs report expected out later this morning will show continued gains. And coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, the latest on the trial of Jennifer Crumbly, who prosecutors say is partially responsible for a Michigan school shooting carried out by her son. It's 819. Hello, this is Simone Rios. I'm a reporter here at WBUR, and this is my daughter, Gabby. It was New Year's Eve of 2022, and Gabby showed up unexpectedly to a performance of mine in Boston's South End. On the spot, she agreed to get in front of the mic and sing this beautiful Uruguayan song called Inoportuna. On this Valentine's Day, I want to share this story of love and music with our WBUR family. Whether it's with our voices or with a bouquet of roses from Winston Flowers, this is the time when we can express our love for the people closest to us. And if you do choose flowers this Valentine's Day, consider sending them from WBUR to support our journalism and lift all our voices. Check out the offerings at WBUR.org. Mostly overcast today. Highs will be near 40. Temperatures fall to lows around 30 tonight, and there's a slight chance of snow. Tomorrow, highs only in the mid-30s, but it'll be mostly sunny. Clear skies on Sunday will have highs in the upper 30s. It's 40 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from the station. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive. Nervive Nerve Relief is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. From the Annie E. Casey Foundation, using research and evidence to develop solutions that help families and communities create a brighter future for young people. More information is available at AECF.org. From the Pew Charitable Trusts, sharing stories to illuminate data and trends that shape the world today through its podcast, After the Fact. Learn more at pewtrusts.org slash after the fact. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. On a Friday, it's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Leila Faldil. Despite some high-profile layoff announcements, U.S. employers continue to add jobs, and the unemployment rate remains very low. We'll get an update on the January job market later this morning. NPR's Scott Horsley joins us now with a preview. Hi, Scott. Good morning, Leila. Good morning. So this will be the government's first monthly job report of the new year. What are analysts expecting? 
Forecasters think we're going to see another solid month of job growth in January, although the pace of hiring has slowed from this time last year. One thing to keep an eye on, the job growth in recent months has not been as broad-based as it once was. Uh, Julia Pollack is chief economist at the online job site ZipRecruiter. She says only a handful of industries are still adding workers at a rapid pace. Over the last six months, 92% of job gains were in just three sectors, healthcare, the government, and leisure and hospitality. Other parts of the job market have slowed down, in part because the Federal Reserve has pushed interest rates to the highest level in more than two decades. That's really put the brakes on anything connected to housing, for example, uh, home improvement stores, mortgage brokers. Now, mortgage rates have come down a little bit in recent months. They were up close to 8% back in October. Today, they're just over 6.5%. But overall, borrowing costs are still pretty high. The Fed's been focused on the fight against inflation, but it's also supposed to maximize employment. What do Fed policymakers see when they look at the job market? They see what looks like a more normal job market. You know, Even though the unemployment rate is still really low, it's been under 4% now for almost two full years, the competition for workers is not as frenzied as it had been. There's still a lot of job openings, but there are also more workers to fill those jobs. Uh, Fed Chairman Jerome Powell said this week that a lot of people who had been idled uh, by the pandemic have now joined or rejoined the workforce. And we've also seen a rebound in immigration. Those two forces have significantly lowered the temperature in the labor market. To will is still a very strong labor market. It's still a good labor market for wages and for finding a job, but it's getting back into balance, and that's what we want to see. This week, the Fed said if inflation continues to come down, uh, the central bank should be able to start cutting interest rates this year, although probably not right away. Okay, so if there's less frenzy in the job market, are workers still getting nice pay raises? Yeah, wages are still going up, although not as fast as they were. Uh, The good news is prices aren't going up as fast either. So for Mm -hmm. most of last year, wage gains have been outpacing inflation. What's more, workers are getting more productive. And economist Neela Richardson of the payroll processing company ADP says that's good because rising productivity makes it easier for employers to offer pay raises without having to raise prices. This week, we learned that productivity jumped more than 3% in the final months of last year. Productivity is the magic wand that keeps wages growing solidly without spiking inflation. So that is, in my mind, a really important number. Average wages in December were up a little more than 4% from a year ago, and we'll find out this morning what the average pay raise was in January. NPR's Scott Horsley. Thanks, Scott. You're welcome. Time now for StoryCorps. When Robert Robinson's daughter, Angel, started rapidly losing weight, doctors misdiagnosed it as an eating disorder. During a visit to the hospital, an on-call doctor discovered a rare tumor in Angel's stomach. That physician, John Fortunato, would stay with the family through Angel's treatment up until Angel's death last year. Recently at StoryCorps in Chicago, he sat down with Angel's father for this conversation. My first memory of meeting Angel was in the hospital. When I walked in the room, Angel was smiling the whole time, a teenager who was in control of the room. And I remember she told me to push her in her belly and I could make her throw up. After I diagnosed Angel with the tumor, what was your first response to that? Before you discovered it, no one would listen to her, even me. And I still regret that, but I didn't know they were saying it was an eating disorder. And when you go to the doctor, you're trusting the professionals You just, okay, that's what the doctor said. That's what it is. So I'm kind of trying to push her. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it's not her fault. Parents 
myself included, don't always see things clearly, especially as it relates to teenagers. But that doesn't mean a parent's doing something wrong. I, I never tell someone not to feel guilty because that's not a fair expectation, but we just do the best we can to support and love our kids. And that's something that amazed me, you being a single father of twins and somehow spending an incredible amount of time and energy with both your daughters. Nothing else mattered to me but my kids. We couldn't rely on anybody but each other. It was a us against the world type of situation that I feel made her stronger mentally. Because it's a lot of times I wanted to be like, well, if you're going to die anyway, forget doing this chemo, you keep your hair. Then she would, no, we don't give up. I'm going to keep fighting. I wasn't ready to give up either. But I realized, you know, after a while, it was a just almost impossible situation. When Angel died, I just remember standing over her and trying to talk to her and her eyes was open, but she wasn't responsive and her sister was singing to her and her heart rate was dropping. It was going from 180 and went down to 140, from 140 and went down to 80, from 80 it went down to 40, and it, it was over. She um, reminded me kind of what I got into this career to begin with for. And that's the only regret is I wish I could have told her what her impact was. And I really appreciate those times everyone was saying it's a wrap, you know what I mean? For you to still be there and be like, no, nah, there's still stuff you can do. You ain't got to blow the trumpet just yet. When a time where it wasn't any hope, that really lifted us up. Robert Robinson and Dr. John Fortunato, Angel, who preferred they-them pronouns, had a final wish that their story would help other patients be heard when seeking treatment. This conversation is archived at the Library of Congress. Major support for StoryCorps comes from Subaru, who, along with its retailers, is partnering with Operation Warm to provide more than 150,000 children in need with new necessities like coats, shoes, and socks. Subaru, more than a car company. And from Dignity Memorial, helping families protect their loved ones and gain peace of mind by planning cremations and funerals in advance. Dedicated to professionalism and compassion in every detail. More at DignityMemorial.com. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next. Then coming up at 845 on Morning Edition, black musicians who say their role in the folk world is often overlooked will headline a new festival this weekend at a legendary Cambridge venue. It's 829. Schools are closed in Newton for an 11th day today as the teacher strike there continues. We're following negotiations for a new contract on 90.9 WBUR. Keep listening. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Elliott Hotel, a luxury boutique hotel in Boston's historic Back Bay, near universities, high-tech, and the city's cultural life. ElliottHotel.com. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. The Senate is getting closer to an agreement on border security and immigration policy. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer says a vote on a deal is expected next week. 
Lawmakers have been negotiating for months. Republicans have said they won't approve President Biden's request for additional USA to Ukraine and Israel without first striking an agreement on border issues. President Biden will be at Dover Air Force Base in Delaware today. He'll attend the dignified transfer of three U.S. service members killed by a drone strike in Jordan last week. NPR's Windsor Johnston says an Iranian-backed group is claiming responsibility for the deadly attack on the Army Reservists. The White House says it's working to identify which Iranian-backed rebel group is responsible for the drone strike and is carefully weighing next steps. Earlier this week, President Biden said that he's decided how to respond but didn't offer any specifics. Sergeants William Rivers, Kennedy Saunders and Brianna Moffitt all served in the Army Reserve and were assigned to George's Fort Moore. In a statement, Biden extended his condolences to their families, calling them patriots in the highest sense. Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington. This is NPR News from Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Newton students can make up lost class time this February vacation. The Newton School Committee approved the plan as students continue to miss class during the ongoing teacher strike. Today is the 11th day of canceled school in the city. Teachers and city leaders are negotiating a new contract. Yesterday, Governor Maura Healey asked a judge to move the groups into arbitration. Massachusetts House and Senate lawmakers need to compromise on a gun reform bill before it can head to Governor Healy's desk. The state Senate passed the SAFER Act last night after hours of debate. It tightens the state's ban on assault weapons and prohibits where guns can be carried. The House passed its version of the bill last year. Second Amendment groups oppose the measure. A coalition of labor and consumer groups is asking the state's highest court to block a proposed ballot question from Uber, Lyft and DoorDash. Those companies want to change state law so drivers are classified as independent contractors. Massachusetts AFL-CIO President Chrissy Lynch says if the ballot question is passed, it would let the companies pay less and not provide worker benefits. Let's be clear. Under current law, App-based rideshare and delivery workers are employees. These ballot questions would harm the rights of drivers and consumers alike. Lyft, Uber and DoorDash are criticizing the challenge, calling it a cynical legal attempt to keep voters from being heard. There is a move underway to allow Worcester Public School students and their families to visit the city's museums for free. Mayor Joe Petty is asking the city manager to research the feasibility of allowing free admission once or twice a month at the Worcester Art Museum, the Ecotarium, and the Worcester Historical Museum. It would be a great experience for Worcester Public School students to attend and uh, experience the offerings that these institutions can make to them, and uh, it's going to be great for the institutions, too. Petty says he was inspired by a similar program that's launching in Boston this weekend. Mayor Wu's pilot program begins this Sunday and runs twice a month. Boston Public School students and their families will not be charged for admission to several museums, along with the New England Aquarium and the Franklin Park Zoo. It's 8.33. WBUR supporters include Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts, Medicare Advantage plans as low as $0 per month. New benefits for 2024. BlueCrossMA.com slash go. 
The Lakers beat the Celtics at the Garden last night 114-105. The Seas play at home again Sunday night against the Memphis Grizzlies. A high near 40 today under mostly cloudy skies. Still overcast tonight as it falls to around 30. Mostly sunny tomorrow with highs in the mid-30s. Sunny skies on Sunday. Highs will be in the upper 30s. It's 40 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Hiscox, committed to helping small businesses protect their dreams. Quotes and information on customized insurance for specific risks are available at Hiscox.com. Hiscox, business insurance experts. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Falden. And I'm Michelle Martin. Good morning. In a Michigan courtroom today, the key figure takes the stand again in a rare case that charges a parent with involuntary manslaughter for the actions of her child. Prosecutors are making the argument that Jennifer Crumbly and her husband could have taken steps to stop their son from gunning down four classmates and wounding several other people at Oxford High School in November 2021. Quinn Kleinfelter with member station WDET is following the case and he's with us now. Quinn, good morning. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. So the parents requested separate trials, and Jennifer Crumbly's is underway now. Her husband's is set for next month. Just to say more about the specific argument the prosecutors are making in this case. Well, it's pretty straightforward. They say the parents ignored signs that their son was seriously troubled. Instead, they bought in the handgun he used in the school shooting. Uh, prosecutors also say the son texted a friend that he was hallucinating and that he wanted to see a doctor, but his parents refused to take him. So it was the defense that actually called Jennifer Crumbly. She was their first witness. What did she have to say? She said she never saw those messages, that her son never requested any help with his mental health, and that she took any claims he made of seeing hallucinations as kind of a game he played. He would mess with us, that things were going on in the house, uh, silverware was flying across the room, doors were slamming. He actually took a video of the door and showed me kind of see him slam it and him trying to say, see, our house is haunted. In addition to saying she believed her son was just uh, playing around, she said on the day of the shooting, she thought her husband had locked and hidden the gun away. So as we said earlier, Quinn, we don't often see a parent facing a charge like this, a felony, because of a mass shooting carried out by their child. Is there a precedent for this or could this set one? Yeah, in fact, some legal experts say it may already have. Uh, William Swore practices criminal law here in Detroit. He says the mere fact that there's now a trial in this case means the door is open to charging parents with much more than a misdemeanor or civil penalties. Holding parents to a criminal liability for what their children do is a big change. This is not the last time we will see this, and it will not be confined to cases where children kill other children. So, Quinn, I understand that the argument from prosecutors says this happened in part because Jennifer Crumbly and her husband would not take their son home from school, even after counselors showed them violent drawings he had made. What was Crumbly's response to that? She says she would have never refused to take her son home if he had wanted to go, uh, and that she and her husband were preparing to make calls to try to find counseling for him. Uh, She also claims school officials said that her son did not pose an immediate risk on the day of the shooting. Uh, that it was good for him to be around his peers at school rather than home alone while she and her husband were going back to work. 
Uh, she told her attorney she never thought her son could be a killer. I've asked myself if I would have done anything differently, and I wouldn't have. If you could change what happened, would you? Oh, absolutely. I wish he would have killed us instead. Do, do we expect to hear any more from Jennifer Crumbly? Yes, the prosecution is cross-examining Crumbly today. That is Quinn Kleinfelter with member station WDET. Thank you, Quinn. You're welcome. Humanitarian groups have been warning that if more aid doesn't flow into Gaza, the hunger will kill people. But that aid has become a flashpoint. Aid trucks are being slowed by bureaucracy. And now for more than a week, protesters in Israel have tried, with some success, to block trucks from entering Gaza. NPR's Ader Peralta reports on how essential food has become political. Kerem Shalom is just across the border from Gaza. Today, aid trucks sit idle on the Israeli side of a massive concrete wall. About 100 people are chanting, don't give aid to rapists, don't give aid to butchers. For three days in a row, they threw themselves in front of trucks to keep them from entering Gaza. Like many protesters here, Rachel Tuitu sees no difference between Hamas, the militant group responsible for the attack that killed some 1,200 people in Israel last year, and the two million Palestinians who are trying to survive the constant Israeli bombardment in the Gaza Strip. I asked Tuitu if she doesn't think about the innocent civilians. Should I have mercy on, on the children of today who will be the, the terrorists of tomorrow? Those words mirror how the Israeli government initially talked about aid. At the beginning of the war, Israel's defense minister, Yoav Gallant, ordered a complete siege of Gaza. No electricity, no fuel, everything is closed, he said. We are fighting human animals, and we are acting accordingly. 27,000 Palestinians have been killed since the war began, according to Gaza's health ministry. The UN has warned all along that the situation is so dire, Gaza could tip into famine. Israel lifted the total siege, and for a brief period during a ceasefire in November, it allowed in more aid trucks. As international pressure mounted, the Israeli government softened its language. It said it hasn't been limiting aid and that there is no hunger in Gaza. But Miriam Marmor of Gisha, an Israeli organization that advocates for the freedom of movement of Palestinians, says the data shows otherwise. Since the war started about four months ago, about 10,000 trucks have made it into Gaza. And that's more or less equivalent to what had been going in per month prior to the war. Just a quarter of what used to get in before the war. The Israeli military didn't return our request for comment, but Israel has blamed aid groups for the bottleneck. Marmor says the government limits what kind of aid is allowed, where it should be bought, how it should be transported. All of these things impact aid operations and impact a person in Gaza who needs food. To Alex Deval, a professor at Tufts University who studies mass starvation, this sounds familiar. During its civil war, Ethiopia erected a de facto blockade on the region of Tigray. For two years, the government insisted there was no hunger and that it wasn't limiting aid. The numbers showed otherwise. The international community protested, and experts warned of an imminent famine. Deval says the civil war in Ethiopia changed the discourse on hunger in conflict. One thing that was sort of learned by those who inflict famine is that you can get away with it. The international community couldn't stop it. Scientists estimate some 30,000 Ethiopians died because of malnutrition. 
Back at the border crossing with Gaza, I meet Noga Al-Fasa. In October, her uncle was killed and her aunt was kidnapped by Hamas. She died shortly after and her body is still in Gaza. I'm here not because I want to starve a nation, but the only time that we had hostages returned, the only card that we have to play here is that of humanitarian aid. Alfasa says it is painful to think that her actions here could hurt a family in Gaza, but she says she's also seen images on TV of Palestinians celebrating Israeli losses. If a blockade inflicts just enough suffering for them to reject Hamas, she says, it may just stop more suffering in the future. Ada Peralta, NPR News, Kerem Shalom in southern Israel. This is NPR News. Coming up in 10 minutes, the Marketplace Morning Report tells us uh, how a Biden administration plan to quantify the economic impact of natural assets is going. Federal officials are attempting to put a dollar figure on the value of things like coastlines and tree canopies. Near 40 and mostly cloudy today, around 30 and still overcast tonight. Skies partially clear for a mostly sunny day tomorrow. It'll be in the mid-30s, sunny on Sunday in the upper 30s. It's 40 degrees in Boston. Now in business news, Boston-based biotech Indigo Ag is announcing its latest round of layoffs. The company tells the Boston Business Journal it cut jobs from its science and technology department. It's unclear how many people were affected. Indigo had two other rounds of layoffs last year. Cambridge-based NextPoint Therapeutics has a new CEO. The oncology company is hiring Ivan Chung to fill that role. Chung was formerly the U.S. head of a Japanese biotech firm. A popular taco chain is further expanding into the greater Boston area. Bar Taco plans to open its latest Massachusetts location in Hingham. The company has not said when the new location will open. It'll join two other locations in Fort Point and Brookline. It's 844. WBUR supporters include Plymouth Rock Assurance, who believes auto and home insurance should be straightforward and works to assure their customers at every step. PlymouthRock.com slash WBUR and Boston's How Do You See the World experience with the Maparium Globe. Visit and explore stories about global progress. Tickets at HowDoYouSeeTheWorld.com. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. When you think of folk music, who do you picture? Joni Mitchell, maybe, or Bob Dylan, or Pete Seeger with his banjo. Most likely, that artist is white. This weekend, an iconic folk venue in Cambridge aims to elevate black musicians in the genre by giving them the stage at the inaugural We Black Folk Fest. WBUR's Amelia Mason has more. The Boston musician Cliff Notes is best known as a rapper. But that wasn't the music they were raised on. My mom was very christian So, like, listening to rap music was, like, not allowed in her car. So we're going to listen to soft rock and the calm, soothing sounds of David Allen Boucher. I'm David Allen Boucher, welcoming you with open arms as we get ready for tonight's edition of Bedtime Magic. Coming up... There was one song that played all the time on the radio back then that Cliff loved. You know the one. You get a fast car. I want a ticket to anywhere. 
Like a lot of us, Cliff probably listened to Fast Car by Tracy Chapman hundreds of times in the 1990s. And in their mind's eye, Chapman was white. Cliff remembers being stunned when they first Googled the cover art for Fast Car, a close-up of Chapman's face in dramatic shadow. The first thing I notice is black skin, nose, lips, like just like mine, and then this hair that is also just like mine. And I'm like, that could be me. Why was it such a surprise to see a black woman with a guitar singing about being working class in America? After all, what we call folk music is deeply rooted in African-American traditions, from the banjo to the blues. In recent years, black folk musicians like Rhiannon Giddens and Dom Flemons have drawn attention to the ways black artists have been erased. Cliff Notes saw that and was inspired. I was like, okay, so they're thinking about it too. And if they're thinking about it as people who probably grew up in the genre, and I'm thinking about it as someone who is just starting to feel more comfortable in the genre, then let's get it all together and see what we can do with it. That's how the idea for We Black Folk Fest was born. It's two nights of concerts at Club Passim in Harvard Square, this Sunday evening and next. There will be seven artists on each night, many local to the Boston area. They represent an expansive approach to folk music, ranging from singer-songwriters to R&B artists to indie rockers. Aisha Burns, a singer-songwriter and violinist based in Western Mass, is on the bill this Sunday. She grew up playing fiddle in Texas and was often the only black kid in the scene. Growing up, when you just have an interest and you're not really aware of this broader conversation, for me, it made me feel so strange. Like I was the odd bird in all of these spaces. It's time to call it out. To this day, I can still like count on one hand the number of bills that I have played where I'm sharing a bill with another black person singing and playing guitar. Burns says it's about time Club Passy made changes to its predominantly white lineups. I think that realization is so long overdue. It's 2024. In fact, We Black Folk Fest is the result of a diversity initiative at Club Passim called the Folk Collective. Cliff Notes is part of the collective, which gave them the opportunity to pitch the idea for the festival. But Cliff has ambitions beyond the Passim stage. The Dream is a big annual festival in Franklin Park or another location that's closely linked to Boston's Black community. Because I'm looking at it from my experience. What stopped me from thinking I couldn't pick up a guitar at five years old as opposed to at 30 years old? And how many other people might be thinking that same way? Part of it is having things that we own, having things that belong to us and feel like it's ours. We Black Folk Fest sold out days in advance, though you can still stream it online. But for Cliff Notes, the real test is whether the event brings in Black audiences and anyone else who never thought the folk club was for them. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Amelia Mason. That's Wake Me Up by Mel Green, who performs at the festival this Sunday.
Coming up at the top of the hour on WBUR, it's the BBC News Hour. They'll take us to the Kenyan capital of Nairobi, where a huge gas blast has killed at least three people and injured nearly 300. It's 849. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.gov and MathWorks. Creators of MATLAB and Simulink and proud sponsor of The Heart of New England. The new IMAX film now showing at the Museum of Science, Boston. Sending your Valentine Winston flowers from WBUR creates stories that help you think more deeply about the world. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Send your gift almost anywhere in New England and your support of WBUR will enrich the lives of thousands of listeners in Boston and beyond. Order now to save 10% on all four choices, including a dozen long-stemmed red roses. Choose the perfect gift at WBUR.org. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Friday morning. President Biden is imposing financial and travel sanctions on four Israelis accused of attacks on Palestinians in the West Bank. The U.S. added more than 350,000 jobs in January, according to the latest numbers out this morning from the Bureau of Labor Statistics. And the federal government is considering expanded access to methadone as drug overdose deaths continue to surge. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. WBUR supporters include the Executive Ph.D. Program in Business at Bentley. Three years part-time for professionals seeking data research skills. Online info sessions February 9th and 21st. Partly sunny and around 40 today. Temperatures fall to around 30 tonight, and there's a slight brief chance of snow. Mostly sunny and mid-30s on Saturday, sunny and upper 30s on Sunday. It's 40 degrees in Boston. The U.S. economy created nearly twice the jobs forecasters were expecting during the month just ended. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Progressive Insurance with Snapshot. Learn more about Snapshot at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. Snapshot not available in California, North Carolina, or from all agents. I'm David Brancaccio. There's news just now that 353,000 more people were on payrolls in January at a time the betting was for just 185,000. That's from Counting Up Payrolls. The government's parallel survey of households puts the unemployment rate steady at a very low 3.7 percent. Forecasters had thought it might tick up slightly. Economist Julia Coronado, founder of Macro Policy Perspectives, has just gone through the Labor Department reports and joins us now live. Hey, Julia, still a fine time to find a job in America. Yeah, and by this measure, things are even getting a little bit better than they were six months ago. So absolutely fantastic job market. What industries were hiring can you see there? This is the good news, David. Uh, We had seen a narrowing base of hiring, and we're seeing hiring actually broaden back out. So still government and health care and leisure and hospitality are adding jobs. But now we're seeing manufacturing jobs retail jobs, professional services jobs. It really was the broadest month of hiring we've seen in a long time. Takes a little more money, though, to, to hire those people. Average hourly pay went up six-tenths of a percent for the month. That's excellent if that was your raise, but for the inflation fighters at the Fed, that might be of concern. Yeah, this certainly doesn't argue for an early rate cut. <laughs> this data suggests that the economy is doing just fine. Um, wage growth is not 
inflationary per se, but it does mean that consumers are getting real wage gains and they have purchasing power. No, I know this is a mean question to ask with such a short amount of time, but there's a seasonal adjustment here that could have contributed to these revisions upward and the big number? Yes. January, we get beginning of the year raises. We've got a seasonal. It's a month of noise. So take it with a grain of salt. Things look good, but let's see February. All right. Economist Julia Coronado also teaches economics at the University of Texas at Austin. Now, if the economy is roaring along like this, interest rates might not go down quite as soon. Just as Julia said, that whoosh that we heard is the 10-year interest rate jumping to 3.98% on this news today. Stocks S&P futures are still up two-tenths percent. NASDAQ futures up five-tenths percent. Dow futures are down three-tenths percent. Now that a Delaware business court has nixed Elon Musk's $56 billion compensation package, confirmed that is billion with a B, the Tesla CEO is saying he wants to pick up legal stakes and reincorporate the EV company in Texas. Tesla is currently incorporated in Delaware, as are about two-thirds of the Fortune 500. Marketplace's Stephanie Hughes looks at why that is the case and how other states are trying to win over some of these legal domiciles. Delaware's reputation as being the place to incorporate goes back more than a century. That means the state has a lot of experience with corporate law. It also has that specialized business court known as the Court of Chancery with judges who know that law inside and out. There is very little that they haven't seen. Charles Elson is the founder of the Weinberg Center for Corporate Governance at the University of Delaware. The state's experience with business is a business itself. Corporate taxes and fees brought Delaware about $2 billion in revenue in 2022. Tulane Law Professor Ann Lipton says other states would like to see some of that. Texas has sort of loudly announced that it wants to challenge Delaware. I think Nevada has to some extent. Lipton says those states have to be attractive to a company's leadership, but also to its investors. The theory is that investors will not buy shares of your company if they are uncomfortable with the corporate law you have selected. Lipton says other states have tried to challenge Delaware before, but they didn't have the same track record. I'm Stephanie Hughes for Marketplace. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Bitwarden. The Bitwarden Password Manager stores unlimited logins, secure notes, credit cards, and more with access on any device. More at Bitwarden.com. The Biden administration has a 15-year plan to come up with ways to measure the contributions of nature, the natural world, to the economy. A bird sanctuary in a wetland counts as nothing at the moment. Putting a road through it would be positive for GDP as we currently measure these things. A canopy of trees that cools an urban area counts for nothing. A strip mall in its place gets recorded as an asset. At the end of this process, the administration would like researchers and policymakers to have data and statistics to take the contributions of nature into account. Marketplace's Savannah Marr has more. Our traditional measures of economic activity are great at capturing market transactions, says Richard Reddy, an environmental economist with Montana State University. For example, If I get in my car and drive down to Utah and go mountain biking, then parts of that trip will be reflected in economic data. If I spend some money on lodging, that gets counted. Counted in quarterly GDP and consumer spending data and all kinds of other metrics you hear about on this show. If I go to a restaurant, that gets counted. But the enjoyment I get from being out on the desert. And the fact that that spending was because of the beautiful desert. Doesn't get counted as part of GDP. 
But that doesn't mean it's not there, and it doesn't mean that it doesn't matter. Sylvia Saki is a professor of sustainability sciences at the University of Iowa. Aside from generating economic activity, she says healthy ecosystems can also do important work, like a forest that stores carbon or a wetland that purifies water. By omitting these values from the economy, we are giving a false sense of growth and progress. In other words, strong GDP growth doesn't necessarily account for the environmental costs of that growth. You can't manage what you don't measure. Nat Cohan heads up the Center for Climate and Energy Solutions. He says the Biden administration's plan could help federal agencies make better decisions about regulating industry and protecting public lands. We can put an economic value on the importance of clean drinking water, both in terms of how people value that, what they would be willing to pay, but also in terms of the avoided costs, things you don't have to do if you just keep the water clean in the first place. Installing municipal clean water systems, right, that, that have to filter it. And Cohan says if we don't put a dollar value on ecosystem services, then their effective worth is zero. I'm Savannah Marr for Marketplace. Our executive producer is Kelly Silvera. Our digital producer is Dylan Mietnin. Our engineers are Jesson Dooler and John Brewington. I'm David Brancaccio. It's the Marketplace Morning Report. From APM American Public Media. Around 40 today under skies with a mix of sun and clouds. Low 30s tonight and it'll be mostly cloudy with a slight chance of snow. Mid 30s tomorrow and we'll finally have a mostly sunny day. Then all sun on Sunday. It'll be in the upper 30s. It's 40 degrees in Boston and the BBC News Hour is coming up next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by La Cuchara Restaurants and Food Truck, helping you rev up your corporate and private events. Online booking available at lacuchara.com. I'm executive editor for news Dan Mozzie, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston. 92.7 WBUA Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.